All right, this, uh, this month in our Advent series, we're looking at the idea of the deeper magic of Christmas. While all of the festivities of Christmas are great, and while we love decorating and singing and carols and baking cookies and giving gifts and watching the same movies year after year, uh, what is behind all of those traditions? What's beneath them? What's further back from them? Our traditions and this season of the year bring a certain feeling, right? Like bring a level of joy, bring uh, what we've culturally called the magic of Christmas. But there is something deeper still, a deeper magic. That is the thing behind the thing, more than just the true meaning of Christmas, but the fuel that causes and spurs our celebrations to even exist in the first place. Last week we looked at the story of Simeon and how the deeper magic of Christmas revealed that we could trust God because he always keeps his promises. This morning I want to kind of zoom out a little bit and take a bigger picture look at Christmas and to see the sheer insanity of it. We have grown accustomed to the Christmas story, and because we're so accustomed to it, we fail to see the ridiculousness, the unthinkableness, the strangeness, the weirdness, and the unlikely aspects of Christmas. And I think if we can go back and see this a little bit, it will re-enchant our eyes to see the story of Christmas afresh will give us, will help us see that The story of Christmas is quite upside down, if you will. And that once you truly grasp it, there's only one correct response to this upside down Christmas. You know, when Alice goes to uh, Wonderland, she goes down the rabbit hole and she finds an upside down world. A world where furniture is flipped upside down and where everything Alice expects to happen is inverted. And it's flipped on its head. Riddles have no answers. Animals have authority over humans. Games do not have rules. Everything changes in size all the time. And nothing is as it should be. It is truly an upside down world in every respect. And eventually, Alice goes home and everything is right again as it should be. But what if I were to tell you that the world we live in now... The world that is cursed by sin is sort of like Alice in Wonderland. It is upside down. And the problem is we have grown used to and accustomed to the strangeness and the brokenness of the world. The invertedness, the weirdness, the upside down world seems normal to us. Wonderland seems normal to the Mad Hatter and this world seems normal to us. And so while... The Christmas story, and for that matter, really, all of Christianity seems to be upside down. It is actually the only pure and right side up thing that there is. But from our perspective, it all seems quite 
upside down. Christmas seems upside down and unlikely. But the longer we embrace the deeper magic of the gospel, the more normal and right side up Jesus becomes to us. So that's kind of the, the idea I want you to see. And so let's dive in. And I want us to see this upside down, unlikely story of Christmas. And the first thing I want us to see is that the story of Christmas sends us an unlikely king. The story of Christmas sends us an unlikely king. When the angel Gabriel shows up to tell Mary the news that she will give birth to the Messiah, this is what it says in Luke chapter 2. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is one of the first announcements of the coming Messiah. And from the very beginning, we know that he is going to be king. And this isn't surprising. We, if, you, if you knew your Bible in this time, you knew for a long time that the Messiah was supposed to be king. All the way back to Jacob's time, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, uh, his sons, showed us that the Messiah would be king. That this promised seed of Eve, remember, we go back to Genesis 3, they, the sin, everything messes up, God promises Eve that you're going to have a son uh, who will crush the head of the serpent, and with each generation that you can follow the seed, right? Uh, you have Cain and Abel, but then Cain kills Abel, then you're like, well, well, what's going to happen? Well, then there's Seth, and then you find it in Noah, and then in Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob, and then it is passed through Jacob to his son Judah, in which it's prophesied that it says, and the scepter will not depart from him. Meaning, this messianic line, this seed of the woman that we're tracing throughout history, now we know not only will it crush the head of the serpent, but he will be a king. He will be a king. And later, David comes, crowned king, and then God promises that his family, someone in his family, will be on the throne forever. And here, to Mary, we learn from the angel that her son, in the line of David, in the line of Judah, in the line of Jacob, her son, the Messiah, the Redeemer, would come and be given the throne of his father, David, and he will reign forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Right? This, to Mary, is the first announcement uh, that he's coming and his kingship is coming. And so what is it do you expect to happen now that this announcement has happened? Well, you expect that all of Israel would have rejoiced that they would have worshipped, that they would have thrown a party. You expect for them to roll out the red carpet, right? To have uh, Mary live in ease and luxury, to be pampered during her pregnancy, right? You expect pomp and circumstance. You expect her to give birth in a palace and for dignitaries and religious leaders to come from all over the world to pay homage and give support to this newborn king that prophecy has foretold. You would expect this for really any newborn king, but this was more than just any new king. This was the king that the world had been waiting for, that prophecy after prophecy after prophecy pointed to, the one who would come to reign forever. And so you can just imagine that they would pull out all the stops, that there would be feasting without end, celebration and worship and all of this fuss. You, you imagine kind of like when Aladdin comes into Agrabah. Right, as Prince Ali, right, and I'll spare you singing the song, but he comes in, right, and there's, there's all of these uh, uh, elephants, and there's all these, what other animals are there? There's camels, and there's 
monkeys, and what's the ostrich thing? That's small emus. See, there's all these emus or whatever. No, peacocks. There's peacocks. There's all of these animals. And there's all this problem. There's this celebration for a fake king or a fake prince. And you expect that level of magnitude and celebration for the coming of this prophesied king who will reign forever. That's what's logical. That's what's expected. But for this upside-down world that we live in, instead, the king of kings, the prophetic king, gets none of that. We have a king who comes in obscurity. There are no parties. There are no feasts. There are no parades, no celebration, no palace. Instead, we find a king born in the small Little bitty, know-nothing town of Bethlehem in a stable because there was no room for the king in the inn. A king who isn't pampered, who isn't pampered his whole life, but works as the son of a carpenter, who ministers to the sick, who cares for the dying, the outcast, and the untouchables. The story of Christmas tells us about a king Unlike any other king. Because this king is not afraid to look at us and call us brothers, Romans 8 says. He isn't ashamed of us. He isn't ashamed of the poor. He isn't ashamed of the needy, of the broken, of the addicted, of the hurting, of the outcast. He doesn't come like other kings do and look down on those peasants below him. The Bible says that he is a king who came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to gain more subjects to serve and pamper him. He came to feed the hungry. He didn't come for more people to drop grapes in his mouth as he lounged. He came to heal the broken. He came to serve. And kings just don't do that in our upside-down world. Everyone else serves at the pleasure of the king. Everyone else drops everything, sacrifices everything, does everything for the king. Everyone else scurries around to make sure the king and everything that he wants is perfect. His bed is perfect. His food is perfect. All that his needs are met. But not the king of Christmas. No, this king, the king of Christmas, had nowhere to lay his head. The king of Christmas had no maids and no butlers and no one serving at his beck and call. He had no money. He had no place to lay his head. This king came in humility and in obscurity and came to serve. Here's the way Paul writes it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is to held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This king is God. He is God, very God. This king had everything. This king literally owned everything in the cosmos, in the universe. He could have been born and made the rocks cry out and worship him. And yet, he models for us true humility. By going from the largest, most powerful, most riches, most beautiful person in existence in the universe. And he becomes a single-celled organism in his mother's womb. 
and he's born an infant child with no one to greet him but dirty shepherds who no one really cared about. This is a king no one expected. The world certainly didn't expect him, but even his own people, the Jewish people, didn't expect him. The Jewish people were looking for a king to come in power, a king to come in might, a king to come like David, right? But in the coming of Jesus as our king, God is showing us a glimpse of the real world, of the world right side up as it actually should be, the world as he is making that looks upside down to us. He is showing us what a true king looks like, what all kings should aspire to be. He is showing us the sort of king our hearts have longed for, the only sort of king that could come and lead to change the world. He is the unlikely king because the world does not comprehend who he is. A king like Jesus is so foreign to what we think a king is. And so Jesus, the king of kings, comes to reshape our imaginations on what sort of king the world really needed. And it wasn't a king full of power and might and royalty. The world has plenty of those. The king we needed was a king who would come not with a sword in his fist, but a towel around his waist. A king who didn't come to slay his foes, but to wash their feet. That is the kind of king we needed and the kind of king we have at Christmas. But he doesn't just come as king to serve. He comes as a king with a message. He comes as a herald. The second thing I want you to see is that the story of Christmas sends us an unlikely message. The story of Christmas sends us an unlikely message. Most people think when a king is on the move... When a king is coming, he is coming to rule. He is coming to reign. And most people think that if the king has not already amassed the land in which he wants to reign, that he will grow an army and take it by force. And this is exactly what the Jewish people specifically were expecting. We even see this in Zechariah's response to the miraculous birth of his son, John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, verse 73. He says, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Throughout Israel's history, they had again and again and again faced enemies. And when they were faithful to the Lord, what happened in Israel? Particularly when the king was faithful to the Lord, the Lord would dispatch their enemies. God swallowed up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He knocked down the walls of Jericho so the army could take them over. He led their tiny little puny little army to victory against massive well-trained armies. But then when Israel would fall away and worship other gods, God would hand them over to their enemies to be disciplined. The Philistines controlled them for a while. They were in exile in Babylon and in Assyria. But in the present moment, For Zechariah and for Mary and Joseph and all these people, they were living under Roman occupation. They were oppressed and controlled by the Roman government, not controlling the land that was theirs by right, promised by God. And so at news of the Messiah's finally coming, the assumption was he would come to raise an army and drive out the Romans and establish the kingdom of Israel as the powerhouse of the world. They thought the message would have been something akin to the American Revolution. Join or die. 
They thought that was the message. Them and Ben Franklin. They thought their king was coming to lay waste to oppressors. Letting in those who would want to become Jewish and wiping out everyone else. Join or die, the Messiah is here. But this is not the message of Christmas. This is not the message of Christianity. This is not the message that this Messiah king comes to bring. Though he was coming to deliver them from the hand of their enemies, like Zechariah prophesies, they failed to understand who their true enemy and our true enemy actually is. See, the enemy wasn't Rome, and it wasn't some other government power. Their enemy and our enemy are the same. Our greatest enemy is sin and death. Our greatest enemy is sin and death. Zechariah was right. He may not have fully understood who the enemy was, but he gets to the heart of the message of Christmas. And Zechariah continues like this in verse 76 of Luke chapter 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, he knew that his son, John, John the Baptist, would go to prepare the way for Jesus, who was bringing salvation and the tender mercy by bringing forgiveness of sin. And John would grow up to truly understand this. And John the Baptist encapsulates this so well in one line. John is, is, remember, John's been living in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, big old beard, crazy looking dude in the wilderness. And he's been baptizing people. And he looks up and he sees his cousin Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he encapsulates the message of Jesus in those words. You see, the king comes bringing quite an unlikely message. The Messiah doesn't come to raise a sword. He comes to take up a cross. And that was very different than what anyone wanted or expected. They wanted him to come with a sword in his fist. But instead, he comes to take up a cross. They expected an army to defeat their enemies. What they got was a king who came to die himself. And so many, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it at first. Even the disciples didn't get it until he was raised from the dead. And then spent 40 days to explain to them, all right, guys, let me break it down for you. That the only way to defeat our true enemy, who wasn't Rome? Rome's going to fall in a few years. Y'all just wait. The true enemy wasn't Rome. Our true enemy was sin and death. And the only way to defeat sin and death was for me to succumb to sin and death, to be overtaken by sin and death, though without sin and without deserving death himself, to succumb to the curse of sin and death. He comes showing that all of those lambs in the Old Testament that for thousands of years had been slain and blood running through the street, all of those lambs, all of those sacrifices, none of those ever forgave one single sin. The book of Hebrews makes that clear to us. But every lamb that was slain simply was an arrow pointing forward to the only one, the only lamb who could come to actually be slain on our behalf to forgive us of our sin. And so Jesus succumbs to sin and death 
though he himself innocently slain. So what would happen? That death had no hold on him and death spits him back up. Because he's innocent. You see, only in coming into the world, this Messiah, this King, and only in living a human life perfectly, never sinning, and then only in dying a sinner's death in our stead could the Messiah accomplish our greatest need and defeat our greatest enemy and accomplish our forgiveness of sin that we might come into the family of God. You see, the Jews wanted a conquering king, and they got one. They got one. They just had their sights set on the wrong enemy. And so the deeper magic of Christmas comes to show us an unlikely king with an unlikely message. The message is not uh, join or die. It's come and die and in my death find life. That's the message. It's not join or die. It's come and die and in my death find life. And in death shall you live. So we have an unlikely king, an unlikely message. But this message comes to a very unlikely people. The story of Christmas is for an unlikely people. Notice in Mary's song, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been told what's going to happen to her. She's going to be pregnant and give birth to the Messiah. And then she sings this song about the coming of her soon-to-be son in Luke 1, 51. And she says, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The world thinks that it is the rich and powerful, the popular and influential, who will garner the attention of this king. And the king, they think, would be interested in them because they're powerful, because they're wealthy, because they have influence. That he would want lords and ladies by his side. That he would want the thrill of palace life and servants waiting on him. The world thinks that a king is unconcerned with small people, with peasants, with the lowly class, with the broken, with the sick, and with the hurting and the dying. And the religious people, the Jews, thought kind of similar. But it wasn't just the powerful that the Messiah would be interested in. It would be the righteous. It would be those who thought they were good and devout. Those who really knew their Bibles really well. Those who fasted the most and prayed the most. And they thought that he would come and join them in their religious understanding and shun and have hatred for the sinners and the prostitutes and the lepers and the, and the traitorous tax collectors. They thought in their holiness and piety that Jesus would come buddy up with them and look down on everyone else with him. And to look away from the Gentiles, those unclean people. Get, get them out of here. But the story and the message of Christmas does not come to anyone, anyone in the world or the religious expected. Mary's song gets it right before she even gave birth to Jesus. He says that he scattered the proud. He brought down the mighty and exalted those of humble estate and filled the hungry and the rich he sent away. You see, Jesus would say it like this, I have come for those who are sick and know they need a doctor. I have not come to call the righteous but the sinner to repentance. We see this in those that are first told about the birth of Jesus. 
the long-awaited, prophesied Messiah, King of kings in the line of David, who the scepter will not depart from him, the one who crushed the head of the serpent and sit on the king of, throne of David forever. Who is told first about this? Not the royals, not the important people, not the religious people, not the righteous people. The lowly, dirty, stinky, poor, broken, nobody, unwanted shepherds. Jesus is born in a stable and his arrival party is the lowest of the low. The the working class peasantry. Shepherds. Not because that's all who would come. Because that's who he invited. He sends his angels to invite some people to see his birth. And he could pick anybody. And he says, I want those guys over there that are out in that field with the sheep. That nobody else cares about. Because those are exactly the people I'm coming for. You see, Jesus announced his birth to shepherds precisely because it was for them and those like them that he came to save. So if you know you are broken, and if you know you are a sinner, and if you know you are bad, and guilty, and rotten to the core, and if you are poor, and you are addicted, and you are sick, and you are hurting, and you are downcast, and you feel like you can't go on, and you feel like you are not good enough, and no king, and no messiah, and no savior would want you in his court, or his family, or in his presence, then you have to realize you are exactly and precisely the type of person for which this king came. And no one expects that. (laughs) Jesus came to save those who knew they needed saving. It reminds me of a story about a pastor who was uh, in a big church, and uh, they were in the middle of service, and they were singing, and he noticed coming from, they were like in New York City, I think, and uh, he noticed coming from the back end, walking all the way to the front, was this homeless man. And he smelled him before he saw him. And he goes to turn to walk down the aisle because this guy's getting ready to, you know, interrupt the service and make this scene or whatever. And so he's walking down the aisle, pulling out his wallet, getting some money to shove it into his hands, turn him around and get him out before he kind of makes too much of a scene. And as he's walking up to hand him money, this homeless, stinking man pushes his hands away and says, I don't want your money, I want your Jesus. And it was a wake-up call for his pastor to realize "This this is the type of person for who Jesus came. Those who know they need a Savior, those who know they are broken and hurting without hope, those who know they are sick and need a doctor. So we have a king who comes in humility, and he comes to serve. uh, serve. We have a king who comes to bring a message of forgiveness accomplished only through a sacrificial death, that God would die for us. And one who comes to bring a message that we do not deserve. But those who know they're desperate enough, he comes for them. You see, Christmas is a magical season of the year, a time of generosity, a time of care for the poor, a time of celebration with family. This is a time of making merriment. But what is behind all this merriment? What is the deeper magic? It is a God who is radical in generosity by sending his son to save us. It is a God who is humble enough to become a man, taking on flesh, walking in our shoes, washing our feet, serving us. It is in his willingness to give his life for sinners, undeserving of his gift, and yet he gives it anyway because he loves the world and he loves the broken and he loves sinful people. Christmas is more than our festivities. We know that. But it is also more than just our nativities. 
and is the deeper magic of Christmas is not in the baby, but in who this baby is and what he's come to do. And so the final question is, what do we make of all this? How do we respond to this upside-down Christmas of an unlikely king with an unlikely message to come to an unlikely people? See, the deeper magic of Christmas is it's more than festivals and lights and presents. It's the deeper magic shows us this humble king with this message of forgiveness, death on a cross to shepherds and people who are know they're sinners. And when we see this Christmas story for what it actually is, this act of sheer love and sheer grace of God, there is only one proper response. And we see it over and over again through everyone who hears about the coming of the Savior or who meets him. Mary says in her song, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The angel said to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. The shepherds say, after they meet baby Jesus, they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Simeon says he blesses God. Anna, who waited in the temple, lounging and waiting and longing to see the Messiah, gives thanks to God. The wise men traveled the known world, brought gifts, and they bow down in worship. You see, for everyone who knew and understood who this child was and understood who they were, because Herod doesn't do this, but who understand they were and understood who he was. They say it different, they, they portray it different, but the response is the same. They worshiped God. The Christmas story should lead us to worship. Worship is us showing our thanks, our gratitude, our devotion, our allegiance, confessing our inadequacy and magnifying the might and glory and holiness and goodness of the one in whose sandal we are unworthy to tie. Like John the Baptist, we must say, I must decrease and he must increase. The Christmas story should spur us on to love Jesus more. And to follow him deeper. It should spur us to give our lives more fully to him. The one who came to exchange his life for us. You see, all of our Christmas generosity to other people. The kindness we give. The giving of gifts. The Christmas spirit. The forgiveness we might give to someone who's wronged us. The good feelings that we get around the Christmas season. What we call the magic of Christmas. Is all for nothing if we do not understand that all of our good tidings, all of our celebrations, all of our good works and kindness are from him and through him and for him and because of him. If all of the hustle and bustle of Christmas does not lead you to think more about Jesus and worship him and follow him deeper, then you've missed the point of the festivities. You have brought in, you've, you've bought into the magic of Christmas, but you've forgotten the deeper magic. If you celebrate Christmas and do all of these fun things, bake the cookies, watch the movies, do all of this stuff, all the cultural holiday stuff of Christmas, and you have forgotten Christ, then you have forgotten the purpose and the point and the deeper magic of Christmas. Because Christmas should cause us to worship Jesus all the more. The deeper magic of Christmas tells us a story unlike any story the world has ever heard or will hear again. 
It is a story so unthinkable that it must be true. A story that is upside down from our existence. We find in the Christmas story an unlikely king who comes with an unlikely message to an unlikely people. This story is so wondrous that the only proper response is worship. And we have grown so accustomed to the story that we fail to see its upside down nature. We fail to see that it is strange, it is weird, it is unexpected, it's unlikely, it's absurd. We fail to see that actually we live in an upside down world. We live in Alice in Wonderland. And what Jesus came and did, it has lifted the veil to show us a glimpse of the real world. To show us a glimpse of the world God is making and restoring. A world where kings are humble. A world where kings lay down their lives for peasants. Where broken people are made whole and are brought into the king's family to feast and live in merriment forever. That's the story of Christmas, and that's the deeper magic. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather to celebrate the Christmas story. And would you help all of our festivities and, and, and Christmas uh, uh, things that we do, the baking of cookies, the watching of movies, the singing of song, would you help everything that we do this, this, uh, this month lead us to deeper longing deeper enjoyment, deeper trust, and deeper worship of the King of Kings who sits on the throne of David, who is crushing the head of the serpent, and who will reign forever. Would you help this season to spur us to look at Jesus all the more, and help us not to be so caught up with the the hustle and bustle that we miss what the hustle and bustle points to. Would you not help us, help us not to get caught up in the magic of Christmas that we miss the deeper magic of Christmas, the one to whom all things point and flow and are fueled by? Father, for those in this room this morning who experience Christmas culturally but have never experienced Christmas with a relationship with this king because they don't know you, they've... they've Celebrate Christmas all their life, but they've never worshipped at Christmas because they're not your child. If that's you this morning, you don't know Jesus, you've not bowed your knees to him as king, as we sing this song, I'm going to stand over here to the left, come up, I'd love to talk with you and show you what it means and how easily you can make Jesus your king and your life changed forever. If you're here this morning and you are just exhausted from all the busyness, maybe today... It's time to take a little time out, slow down, and set your eyes on a manger in Bethlehem and a king come to die for you. That we might see all of our Christmas festivities point to him and fuel our worship of him. Father, help us respond the way we need. We love you so much. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, let's stand together.